Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates current classic and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our opening theme was composed by Greg Zirloff. Tonight, our guest is author and film historian Derek Sculthorpe, who has written extensively about iconic character actors of the 1940s and 1950s. And I'm so excited to talk to you. Derek, about this, these wonderful <laughs> actors you've written about. Well, thank you. It's great to be here, uh, Steve. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, thanks you... for being very uh, accommodating. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, we've got a number of actors to jump on, but I, before we get into that, I want yeah. to talk a little bit about you. Uh, you told me yes. that the first movie you can remember seeing is Treasure Island. Uh, yeah, that was you... at the... Yeah. I was just going to say, did, gonna... did you grow up in a family that went to the movies frequently? Yes, we did, yes. But uh, I think the thing was that I was thinking the other day that a lot of the films that I saw, really, it was on television. Because I suppose we were one of the first generations to be kind of... Um, <clears throat> there was less cinema going at that point. And we, we had the television and we saw all these films that, you know, I mean... You have to realise there was only three channels in Britain in those days. It wasn't like now where there's a plethora, you can see everything whenever you want, so the touch of a button sort of thing. But in those days, of course, it was very much um, limited. And it, television was only on for a certain length of time in the day and all that. It was very kind of, and you couldn't, you couldn't, we couldn't, as children, we couldn't just sort of switch the television on. <laughs> you know, the grown-ups had to do it and all that sort of thing, you know. So I think a lot of the films that I saw, the early films, would have been on television. And a lot of them were horror films, oddly enough. When I say horror, I don't mean like modern type of horrors, obviously. These were like uh, universal type, you know, the kind of thing, Boris Karloff and sure, Lugosi and, and all those. And then, of course, uh, the British version was, of course, with Christopher Lee and his gang. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Uh, I think some of the film I wouldn't have seen those horror films, I don't think, had we been going to the movies, because as kids, you don't tend to, you tend to go and see the action kids, uh, you know, the sort of Herbie Rides Again kind of thing. You know, you'd be going to see them at, at the cinema, whereas you're not going to see old horror films from like way back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas it's, it's a great introduction to it on television, and that's where I think I saw most of them. I remember seeing The Walking Dead when I was about seven, or something like that. And that had quite an effect on me, I think. Um, I don't know what sort of effect, really. <laughs> but I used to love those glow-in-the-dark monsters. They were made by Aurora. You know, these kits that you used to get, all from America, they were the wonderful things. As a kid, you know, you were sort of oh, a bit sure. obsessed well, with monsters, really. Well, you were a lot braver than I am. I, I was really? being an only child growing up in West Los yeah. Angeles <laughs> and going to the movies on rainy days when we had rain frequently. I mm. I was often freaked out leaving the theater. I remember seeing uh, John Agar in The Brain from the Planet Era. Oh, yes, yes. And I, I looked in every window on the stores, and I kept on seeing that damn brain. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, when it's raining, it adds to the atmosphere. Mm. Oh, absolutely, yes. Creepy, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, well, yeah. You've, you've written literally books on some very iconic character actors. Yes, and yes. I wanted to start with one of them because he's always been one of my favorite mm. kind of, you know, everyman types. And, of course, I'm talking about Edmund O'Brien. Yes, yes. Tell, tell me what kind of motivated you to write a book about Edmund O'Brien. Well, the first thing was it came about about 10 years ago. I had the idea to do that, really. Uh, long before I'd even really tried to publish things much. I'd only done a few articles and that kind of thing. But it just struck me as strange that there wasn't anything about him. You know, nobody had ever tried to do anything uh, any of any length about him. You know, which I mean, he'd been in all the compendiums and you know all these encyclopedias, and people were very aware of him. I think, but I just thought he was one of those people that needed to be, you know, to to be remembered, to be uh, given a proper tribute in a sense, and that was my motivation originally for doing it. What if you were to if you were to synthesize the impact mm. of Edmund O'Brien as an actor in Hollywood, mm. how would you describe him to young people today who have never heard of him? Uh, I'd say it was I'd say he was a dynamic actor first and foremost. 
I would say he was a great character actor and that he could inhabit any role, really. And, I mean, I know he became very typecast for noir um, because he had that about him somehow, something about him. I don't know what it was exactly, but uh, I think he could do everything, really. He could do comedy. And he started out on the stage. People tend to forget that he was in Shakespearean dramas, and he did very well in the stage. He could have continued that. Um, but like a lot of actors, he, he took his lot to – he threw in his lot with Hollywood. Um, but I think he has a lot to say to, to any, any, anyone who wants to study acting. Uh, they could do worse than just pick out a bunch of his films, really. Uh, you know, for the art of acting itself. And he's often been called, as I think some of the others have as well, but they've often called him the actor's actor, in a sense. Uh, I think that's quite true, really. Um, he's got this dynamism. Uh, it's very American somehow. It seems to us very American anyway, a very kind of uh, strength of character. Um, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to put into words, really. But he seemed to distill a lot of that um, unease, shall we say, and all the psychological trauma, you might say, that's been caused by the war and that came to be seen specifically in the, in the film Noirs and also in the kind of Cold War films and all that kind of thing as well. But uh, it was this kind of... I was just going to say, a couple of weeks ago, um, I had um, um, the gentleman from um, Turner Classic Movies. I don't know if you mm. get Turner Classic Movies in England. Uh, yes, you can get it, yes. I don't uh, see it, though, but I do hear about it. It's a different schedule, I think. Well, there's a gentleman named Eddie Muller. Eddie Muller is... Yes, yes, I know him, yes. The czar, yeah. czar of noir. The czar of, yeah. Yes. So <laughs> I had him on the show, and we talked about the asphalt jungle, of course, mm. Sterling Hayden and John yes. film. Yes. But we also talked about the killers. And yes. Of course, yes. the Killers is probably Mr. O'Brien's first real breakout movie. Yes, it was. Yes. And I, you know, he walks into the, you know, he's he's basically an insurance investigator, mm -hmm. and I think mm -hmm. Edmund O'Brien had had a really talent to play that kind of sarcastic. Yes. And uh, no, no nonsense. Uh, you know, which what some people would call a, a you know a a working man and mm. uh, he brought something special he had kind of a glee he had a little bit of a glint in his eye yes he did yes very much so. I, I like that role very mm. much uh of course he's investigating the death of a character known as the swede yes it's, you know it goes back and it's it's one of those movies typical noir does a lot of flashbacking yes which was very mm. good so I, I enjoyed that movie very much yeah. why do you think he did so well in noir what, what do you think about that um, I I think he's he had that sort of sarcastic humor a lot of the time. That, that he, he certainly had a, a great sense of humor, I think, and the humor comes through quite a lot. Um, and that's that's one of the things I would say. As I say, this dynamism that specifically he always seems driven, and a lot of the, the the noir characters are very driven, aren't they? You know, and often they get backed up into a corner either by their own kind of misdemeanors or by circumstances or everything conspires against them somehow he just seemed to be able to put that across i don't know what it exactly was about him but i think having the grounding in shakespeare he said helped him a lot with with noir because it was all about uh, he said that he, he was the first sort of noir writer in a sense you know as, as he saw it that kind of thing you know because you think of the dark themes that are in Shakespeare, and uh, really, it's, it's surprising that it hasn't been used more, in a sense, as a template for later. I mean, it was with uh, that Ronald Coleman film, of course, if you remember, the um, the, the one that he was in with um, Edmund O'Brien was in that as well, A Double Life, if you remember that one. Uh, that I'm, not, actually, I'm, not for, I'm not familiar with that one. Tell us about that one. All right. Well, that was... It's, 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 it's about an actor who plays this role of Othello, who, as you know, is it's all about jealousy, is Othello, obviously. And uh, uh, he plays the part so often that he becomes kind of obsessed with this theme of jealousy and the fact that he was suspecting his own wife of having an affair with other people. And uh, it started to 
come over and he, and he started become became in in a sense murderous after a while and uh anyway <laughs> he, he he sort of thinks that to uh, o'brien as this agent he's having an affair as well with his wife he, fe- he thinks it's uh, it's happening you know it's all in his mind of course <laughs> you know and anyway this is the template for it but uh so at one stage he gets uh, strangled nearly does edmund <laughs> but <laughs> They're very dark. Uh, I think uh, young people today who saw the recent uh, Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Mm. Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't know if you saw it. Do you remember the Edmund O'Brien reference? Uh, Not quite, no. Um, Yeah, at one time, I think think, uh, Leo DiCaprio is talking to Brad Pitt and he's talking about homeownership. And he said something about, you know what Eddie O'Brien used to say? You got to own a home in Los Angeles. (laughs) 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 So Tarantino definitely knows his actors. Yes, yes. It's funny. um, There are so many memorable Edmund O'Brien moments for me, even little little tiny moments. At Mm. the very end of Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth, they cut to somebody talking into the camera, telling people, saying goodbye to the circus and so long and (laughs) have a great life. And that was Edmund O'Brien. Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And I uh, I have to say that one of my, well, there are two favorites. His uh, his newspaper reporter Dutton Peabody. Yeah, well, that was a great one, wasn't it? And the man who shot Liberty mm. Valance um, was just so memorable. Uh, mm. One of the last great black and white westerns. Yes. Yes. Now, Derek, agree. Derek, in your research on Mr. Mm. O'Brien, obviously mm. had long passed. Where, where, mm. what kind of sources could you find on piecing together his life? Well, this was the difficult part, really, because I I went to all these sources that I could possibly find, all the public records, of course, and then he said he at one, time, at one point that he went to university, but the university didn't have any record of him, and so that wasn't much of a help. And then I, I of course, I've got all the all the journals, the film journals, all the interviews he did, all these newspapers and all that kind of thing. I really hoped that I could have got the family on board. That was what I was really hoping to begin with. Uh, and they were very pleasant, but they didn't want to help. That was a sad thing, really. So really, did they give you any reason? Uh, not, no, they didn't give me any reason, really. No, it was just uh, it's just something. I think some people either do or don't, really. You know, they just think did it's a he, private thing. Maybe I don't know. Um, did, did he have children? Yes, he had three children, actually. Yes, but I only found two of them. I couldn't find the third. Well, I, I found his son. And I wrote to him, and he was very pleasant and uh, everything, but he didn't want to help. Um, I was hoping that he might give me his sister's address, addresses so I could write to them, but he didn't. So unfortunately, I had to find the sisters myself, and I could only find one of them. And uh, by the time I wrote to her, I'd more or less finished it, you see, by the time I could actually contact her. So one, one, I think... One, I, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say that the way I try and build up these things sometimes, in the absence of help from people, other people and family members and things, is to try and build it up by sort of detail, really. And you're trying to find everything about them, little things that don't seem really important. But when you put it all together, it makes a, it's, it's a bit of like a checkoff approach, you might say, where you sort of look in a lot of details. And, you know, from a distance, you might not think it's much of a picture, like an impressionist painting. If you look close at it, it might just be a lot of dots. But when you get further away, you can then foresee it all and it's, it makes sense there's a picture you know what i mean you see what i mean sure now another one of his noir films which i haven't seen in years but i know is very mm. really highly prized is doa yes that was a signature film of his isn't this isn't and i haven't seen it in many years isn't this the film where he uh is um is he killed or is do people think he's dead or does he what's the story about he goes there to report his own murder Oh, okay. <laughs> it opens with this scene, the long scene where he goes into this police station. It says, uh, I want to report a murder. And it says, Who's, <laughs> who's murder? Mine. mine. Yeah. So he, he has been he injected. He, that's right. Yes, he unravels this thing that what's happened. And it's all to do with a bill of sale and things and all this kind of thing. It's all very. Uh, <laughs> It's so clever, is that film? Really? Yeah. It has been remade, as you know. Yeah, but um, I think his is the best version. 
Now, do you have a favorite of Edmund's pictures that you have? Um, that's very difficult to say. Um, you mentioned the Dutton Peabody. That's become one of my favorite ones, I think. Uh, but certainly DOA would be the, the top one, I'd say, really. The other one um, that I always I always rewatch and rewatch because it's mm. just uh, it just keeps on delivering is uh, Seven Days in May, the Franken mm. film. Yeah, that's, that's a good the one. Senator yeah. Senator Raymond Clark from Georgia. yes, yeah, good role for Edmund. Yes, it was. Yes, yes, uh, and that was that was in the sixties, I think, wasn't it? Yes, and it seemed very um, of the moment that film. I would imagine um, at that period in time. With all the political goings on that was happening, it was the era of the paranoid thriller. Yes, yeah. At the same time, you got uh, seven. You got Doctor Strangelove, mm. Safe, and the Bedford incident. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Very, very true. Yes. So Ed, Eddie O'Brien, a legend, and if those of you listeners who don't know him, check him out in The Killers and DOA and mm. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Check him out in Seven Days in May. Um, yeah. Now, We'll go I think for- any of his films, really. He, he did some directing. I was just going to say that he did a bit of directing as well. Um, and he co-directed a film called Shield for Murder, which you may have seen, in which he played a rogue cop. Oh, I did uh, not see that one. Actually, yeah, that's very good, yes. Another one we forgot, of course, is the the kind of iconic 1984. Where you mm, yes, indeed. Yes, 84, yes. Which was filmed, of course, in Britain. Yes, it was. Yes, that's a good one as well. I mean, I thought he did really well in that. Derek, was he East Coast based or West Coast based? Was he? Uh, uh... Well, he he came from New York, but uh, he spent most of his time once he'd finished with Broadway and gone to Hollywood. He uh, he stayed in uh, in Los Angeles, and yes. Now we go from Edmund O'Brien to. Uh, uh, certainly a mainstay of the 1940s, which was Sidney mm. Greenstreet. Mm. Now, yes. If you had trouble reaching the family of Edmund O'Brien, I would think you'd have even more trouble <laughs> tracking down relatives of Sidney Greenstreet. Well, no, actually, it proved uh, a lot easier. Oh. Um, the thing was, of course, his son had long since died, I think. Well, not long since, but he died a few years before. Um, but I was able to trace two. Uh, he's, he's got two grandchildren, you say. I was able to trace both of them, and I wrote to both of them. And I thought, well, you never know. <laughs> and one of them did write back. This was Gail, and she was really helpful. And uh, she had loads of photographs and all kinds of things that she let me see and have. Yeah, so that was great. Did you do yeah. all this from home, or did you get a chance to come across the water? No, I didn't come across. No, I wasn't able to at that point. No, um, but she sent them all. She got them all photographed and sent them all. That's and marvelous, yeah. marvelous. I think because these are really rare fo- photographs. You know, I mean, uh, uh, she said she had two scrapbooks, uh, but she found out that the other scrapbook was with her brother. Now you see, her brother never wrote back. <laughs> And he doesn't seem he doesn't seem to contact them very often, and so they, um, you know, I didn't get anything from him. But one of the, you see, you see, some of them, some of them don't always want to, but uh, it made up for it because she did, you know, and it was really helpful. Well, um, you know, they often refer to uh, the larger than life Sydney mm. Street, and yes. certainly as the big man <clears throat> in the Maltese yes. Falcon and Casablanca. Uh, what what do you think the key to his presence was? I think it was all the years he spent on stage. He was 40 years on the stage prior to making his debut in, in, the, in, in the Maltese Falcon. And I think it's all that experience that told when he got to it. You know? He was a little bit initially a bit scared almost of doing films because he'd put it off for so long. Every time what had happened is that he'd got offers for films, you see, for years. But his agent had always told him not to do it. Always said, no, 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 you don't want to go into films. So stick with the stage, you know, that's where it's at. And <laughs> so he did. And finally he got this offer from John Houston when he saw him uh, in this in this play and come to, to Los Angeles. And, and he, he sort of uh, went backstage and asked him if he'd uh, be in it. And he said he couldn't resist it, you see. <laughs> Once he saw the role, Did, so, uh, yes, was he put under? Uh, I'm thinking. I th- I think of Sydney as a Warner Brothers player. Oh, yes, yes, yes. 
Yes, he was Warner Brothers. But I think he got a bit tired of being with them after a while. He, he did freelance later on. But yes, he's always mentioned, he's always thought of as Warner Brothers. Yeah. Well, he was what, a mainstay. One of the films he made over there with Errol Flynn was always one of my favorites, the story yes. of General Custer. Yes, they, I love that one. Yes, they yes. died with their boots on where he plays yes. old General Winfield Scott, who most yes, people yeah. get was the person in charge of the U.S. Army at the start of the Civil yes, War. Yes, 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 he was, yes. I think yeah. actually Scott was about the same age. <laughs> I'm not sure. He might have been older. I don't know. Um, and he, yeah. he was born in 1879, so he That's was, right, yes. by the time he did Casablanca, in uh it was in his 60s yeah 60s he was definitely yeah. uh an older man um yeah yeah but he'd had a great life an interesting life uh, i think that's what that was what was great about it because it was such a encompassed such a, a long period because he went from like victorian england to he went to america and he loved america and as soon as he got there he loved it and he just just wanted oh, to stay so there he was born in england Yes, he was born in England. Yes, yes, and he and he he, he was doing tea planting in Ceylon, as it then was. Uh, he got bored with that, you know. <laughs> but uh, and then he, and he and he and he made his way to America. He never really looked back. He toured with East Shakespearean Company, which was called Ben Greet Ben Greet's Company, and that was uh, his passport to uh, to to America. And he stayed there. He became a citizen. So I assume his kids are American. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes. And his son was in the war, actually. Now, you also did a book on Ruth Roman. Yes, that's just oh, come that out recently. A very interesting subject for a for a book. Uh, as you mm. know, you and I have this mutual friend, Bud Burton. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, Bud was great. Yes. Yeah, what a window into history. And Bud Amazing. was her, her ex-husband. Mm. Um Tell us about Ruth Roman. What brought you to the door of Ruth Roman? Well, this came about really from a photograph, which sounds a bit strange, I suppose. But my um, when my dad was, was young in the 40s, 50s, he used to send off to Hollywood like they all did in those days, you know, to send for signed photos of the stars, you see. And often these photos would come back. Sometimes they wouldn't bother because they didn't sign. No, some people had a thing about not signing anything, you know. So you didn't get any sign on signature on it. But um, she was one of the few that actually written it herself, because you know you can often tell it's been done by a stencil or I don't know how they do it exactly, but it's it's not them that's written it sort of thing, you know. But she done it herself when she made it. Uh, she she put a, a sort of personal um, inscription sort of thing, and, and that struck me as someone that was. Uh, I thought she was attentive to her fans. Uh, and I thought that was quite important, really, because a lot of people are a bit dismissive, really. Once they become quite famous, they kind of might think, oh, well, I'm not going to bother signing autographs, you know. <laughs> Some people just tell them to go away, like, you know. But uh, those people that did sign them, I think, people uh, noticed that sort of thing. So it was really started with that. And then, uh, and then I just sort of thought, is it possible to do, Ruth? Because no one had done her in all those years, you see. And I thought, well... Why not? Because um, she was in quite a lot of good films, and she always gave a good uh, performance. My, I thought my my filmography of her or my my dance card of her films mm. is very very weak. Mm. I, I, like like ninety billion people, we've all seen Strangers on a Train. He's Strangers on a Train. Yeah. Strangers on a Train a million times, and then of course, mm. as I told Bud, um, one of my little guilty pleasure movies of the sixties mm. is Look Look in Any Window, Malenka. Yeah, but I know nothing about what in between. So please really? in on some titles. Oh, well, I knew quite a few titles. She really got to start with the champion. The, the thing was with her, she was a long time before she really got going. She didn't do much on Broadway. She didn't. She found it difficult in New York. So she got to Hollywood eventually. And um, it didn't didn't. The doors weren't open straight away for her sort of thing. She had to wait quite a few years before she really could get going. She got a lot of bit parts, and but I think when she got into Champion, I don't know if you've seen Champion with Kirk Douglas. Yes, the, the, boxing, the, the boxing, boxing film, nineteen forty-nine, yes, yes. I believe. That's right. Yes. Well, she was in that. Um, she's the woman that uh, he marries to begin with, 
but it's a sort of shotgun wedding type thing. He, he doesn't want to bother, you know, and she gets left to one side, really. And But she keeps, she stays married to him, sort of thing, while he hits the big time, so-called. And uh, so she was a very quite, um, quite just a waitress in that, but she, she did a, a really good, uh, I thought she was really good in that. And that was one of her first big ones. And then she was in the window, which you might remember Bobby Driscoll witnesses a murder or says he has, but he's, he's sort of the boy that cries wolf and nobody believes him. And um, his parents don't believe him. And it says it's the couple upstairs, which is Paul Stewart and uh, Ruth. And so, anyway, you can't convince anybody that it's happened, and they 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 menace this kid then throughout the film, sort of thing, you know. So that's uh, that was a great noir, I think. Really, did she, um, Eric? Did she? Did she? Did you find any uh, comments from her about working with Hitchcock? Because obviously, Hitchcock was quite a filmmaker. Yes, yes. Well, she she liked working with him, but I think. It was difficult for her on that, actually, uh, because she he wasn't he, he didn't want her for the part. That was the problem. And um, it was Jack Warner's insistence that she be in that film. So that I think put the kibosh on things, really, uh, for her, because often with Hitchcock, there was somebody in a film who we kind of took a dislike to it for some reason. Um, it was one of the character actresses in Rope who we didn't like for some reason. I don't know why not. And he sort of made things difficult for her, apparently. And the same similar thing was true of Anne Baxter in I Confess. Um, and it's happened with, with Ruth that uh, because he didn't, uh, didn't want her in the film, he wanted to have William Holden and uh, Grace Kelly, you see. Really? Yes. And so he didn't want any interference, as you can imagine, being as he was. Uh, he didn't want any interference in the studio boss to tell him, no, no, you're having Ruth, you see. So I think that's probably got off on the wrong footing with her, really, in a way. So we, I think it was difficult for her on that, that film. But she, it wasn't a very good part, in a way. There wasn't a lot you could get your uh, teeth into, really. Well, I, I the think thing about her character in there, you really sympathize with her frustration. Mm. Yeah, that, that Guy Haynes is not being straight with her about this, mm. this horrible relationship with Bruno, Bruno Anthony. Yes, uh, the look on her face and the the emotion uh, mm. is palpable. But you're right. Yes. I mean, it's so funny. Uh, Patricia Hitchcock, uh, Hitchcock's daughter, yes. actually steals a lot of the scenes because of yes, her, she does. Yeah, yeah. Her, her, her comedy. But I thought it was a yeah. good part. So after after Strangers on a Train, did she find some good roles? She found good roles, but the problem was they tended to be in B films. I think this is the problem. And that's possibly why she's disappeared a bit off the radar for a lot of people. Uh, because she didn't get any more. You'd think after Strangers on a Train that she'd get something equally good, if not better, you know, on a, on a par or something nearby, or at least an A film. But she tended to get um, a bit sort of lesser roles, really. Not, as I say, not bad roles, but not very big profile films or anything you know like she was in for instance um tomorrow is another day i don't know if you've seen that film it's got steve cochran in oh let me um, stop you right there if you no, mention, well, he, he comes if, out of it if you mention the name steve cochran i immediately think he's a bad guy is he is he a bad guy uh in this is 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 not really he was a bad guy but he's kind of reformed Okay, because generally when I see a Steve Cochran film, I always aside from yeah. the aside from the tanks are coming, which was a World War II movie. That's yes, he, he always seems to play. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, usually, yes, yes. Well, he was a heavy again, and this he just come out of prison at the beginning of this film. Um, but yes, uh, but the thing is, uh, with that, it's uh, it gave him a bit more of a chance to show his range of it. I would say. That's one thing. Well, and, look, and with her as well, it was a good part for her. Well, look in any window. I, these I, are all worth seeking out. Yeah. I'm sorry? I was going to say a lot of these films are worth seeking out. To see oh, sure. Them. Well, I think the reason I caught into look, look in any window, which some people would say is a B of B movies. Is, yes. Is yeah. the, it's just a fun look at suburbia, 1962, yes. through the yeah. eyes of young Paul Anka, who I also yeah, have on my show. 
oh, uh, earlier last year. And uh, yeah. I thought Ruth Ruth uh, was still very sexy in 1962. Yes, I thought she, so, yeah. Yeah, she had her looks and she has that fling mm. with Jack Cassidy. Yes, yeah. Now, you also did a book on another one of my favorite actors, Brian Donlevy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Brian Donlevy, uh, I just... There's so interestingly, there are certain movies that I just kind of watch and watch and watch and watch. And the original Bo Jest in 1939, mm. where he plays Markov, the sadistic yes, sergeant, yes. is such an iconic role. So, what brought you yes, to Brian Donlevy's door? What was that about? Uh, I think that came about by accident, really. Um, the thing was, when I first did the first one that I did was, was Van Heflin, you see, and at the same time I was writing him, I found out I'm getting information on other actors as well and other things that I've noticed. And then I started watching other films. And one thing led to another. And I seemed to get more on him than some of the others. So I then sort of pursued him because he'd done so many films. I don't know if you've noticed, he'd done about 200 films or something, which is a lot to try and even... So what I try and do with these people, I try, first of all, to watch all the films or as many as possible. Now, it's not always possible to see them all, obviously, but some of them are silent, some of them are difficult to find, some of them are out of print, whatever. Some of them are just, nobody's seen them ever. <laughs> but uh, that was the thing with him. He'd done so many different roles and so many different films, and I think he got taken for granted a bit, really. And yeah, I think these actors tend to do, they tend to, people don't notice them much, really. Um, but they've had, Good career, not to say outstanding half the time, but they've done some really good roles. And he was, as you say, nominated for an Oscar in that. And when oh, he got yeah. a chance in, to in yes. Bojas, yes, that's right. And when he got a chance to be a lead in in, in certain things, you know, he, he 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 did pretty well. I thought. Oh sure. Yeah. Well, three years later, he's in Wake Island, which is one of my Wake favorite Island. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, well, definitely, definitely. But his his portrait of Markov. Mm. It, Oh, Jest is such a, 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 a such a, um, a a course in just yes. how to play a heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, for the listeners who don't know it, uh, Gary Cooper, Ray Meland, and Robert Preston are these three Americans who joined the Foreign mm -hmm. Legion, and they're hiding a secret which I won't reveal here. No spoilers, but they end up at Fort Zindenuf. Mm. which I believe in French means number nine. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're subjected to the, the, the rather sadistic um, command of... Uh, well, Brian Donlevy's not in command. There's actually a, a French officer who's in yes, bed. Yes. He's sick. So yes. we're just waiting for him to die. And uh, Markov mm. has a very... just He just doesn't put up with anything he doesn't like. And he is brutal. He's a brutal, mm. and I know the Foreign Legion is supposed to be one of the more brutal outfits in the world. Yes, all yes. The, they attract all the criminals and people who can't stay in their own countries. Yes, you never my ask a mother, man's past, do you? <laughs> my own mother used to say, "If I did something wrong, why don't you go join the Foreign Legion?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he's he's, he's great. It's a, it's a yeah. great role for him. Now, mm. I I remember him in other things as well. Um, he's um, He's in a Jerry Lewis movie called The Air. That's right. Yes, he is. Yes. He plays the head of a studio. And if you ever, for the listeners who are looking mm. for some comedy at a time where not comedy movies are not as popular, The Aaron Boy is pretty funny. Yes, yeah. And then, yeah, that was a great change of pace for him, really, I think. Very well, change of pace. He, and he, and he, just, he, just before that, he had done a film in England which mm. was the second Quatermass film. That's right, yes, the Quatermass film. Yes, yes. In fact, I think he's in both Quatermass films. He's in both of those, yes. yes. The Creeping that Unknown a... and the Enemy uh, the enemy from Space. Mm. Yes, that was a bit of a lifesaver for him, really, I think, because his career was on the wane a bit then. I, um, he got, he got a, um, was a Dangerous Assignment, I think it was, television series, which was a kind of agent going around different places all around the world, you know. Very popular in the 50s, I think. Uh, so that was quite a good role. But as I say, when it came to the later years of these people, they do tend to find the careers on the wane, obviously. You know? and, uh, uh, Derek, did he have a drinking problem? Yes, he did. That was I was going to say that was sort of contributed to it, really. And he, 
he, he was banned from driving for as he crashed into things and wow, you know, had a lot of problems with so, so what were your um sources for Brian's life? Were you able to reach some family in that case? Uh, some family, but not his daughter again, unfortunately. Uh but his stepson, who is Bella Lagos's son, because Brian married lastly Lillian Lagosi, see, who was married previously to Bella. And uh so he knew him quite well, Bella Lagosi. Bella Lagosi Jr., I should add. And uh yeah, he was very helpful, yes. Yeah, he was very helpful. Um now in Brian's but, case, was he a paramount contract player uh, or did he move around? Oh, he moved around quite a lot, yes, quite a bit over the years. Um he was paramount some of the time. He was Fox when he started out in the thirties. Um but um yes, he used to be a, a heavy in destry rides again, that's another one as well, of course. Right, right. He 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 if 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 I think of Brian Donlevy, he was always sent, always running some kind of saloon. Yes, usually, yes. Yeah. Very dressed up with those vests. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, Jimmy Stewart's walking in as Destry or somebody else. No, it's yeah. it's great. <laughs> Getting back to Van Heflin, Van Heflin, mm. another just wonderful actor mm. who, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if I can identify a, a, an iconic role of his that everybody remembers, but certainly playing opposite Alan Ladd in yes, Shane yeah. was yeah. a key one. What for you? Well, tell us a little bit about Van Heflin's life. Yes, he went off to sea very quite early on in his life. He always wanted to get to sea and uh, he had a, quite an adventurous life early on. Of, a lot of near misses <laughs> and uh i think that made him an interesting actor really because he'd had this quite a life before he got down, down to acting it was a twin thing with him acting and the sea now when and, you say when you say near misses what do you mean uh, well i mean this when there's storms you know on the ships and things and uh you know there was no health and safety in those days much you know they didn't they weren't bothered about that sort right. of thing you could easily go uh, you know, go overboard if you're not uh, careful, you know, in one of those storms. And, um, yeah, but he, he kept going back to the stage. Um, he'd done quite well on the stage, and then he kept going back to it, as I say, and he went back to sea for a while, and he came back to the stage again and uh, finally made his way there for, for good, and then he went to Hollywood, of course. Um, what, was but his, said it, what was his first big break? Uh, his first big break. Well, I mean, he got in a film in the thirties with um, Catherine Hepburn. Really, she uh, she got him uh, uh, started really, uh, and it was called A Woman Rebels. But it wasn't very good, really. And he wasn't really as she as she said, and as he said himself, he wasn't ready for films really. And so then he went back. Uh, traveling again, and then he went back to to uh, to New York to do some more stage work, and then he came back, you know. And then he got his MGM contract. Now the thing was that MGM was really more like not quite suited to his style in a way, you might say, uh, in that it was a lot of big production, uh, you know, big big musicals and that kind of thing. And he wasn't really <laughs> a musical kind of uh, person, really, was he? You didn't associate him with that. So. Uh, and it's only when he got things like uh, Act of Violence. If you've seen Act of Violence, that was at MGM, strangely enough. Robert Ryan. See, I don't that know that film. Tell us a little bit about Act of Violence. Oh, oh well, you see, it's it's really about someone that's 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 um, got a respectable life going on, and somebody comes from the past, um, and something that is something that's happened in the past uh, comes back to get revenge, kind of thing. And uh, it's really sounds about sounds, how... like, sounds like Cape Fear. <laughs> yes, it is similar. Yes, it's that sort of thing. Yes, and the thing is that the Van Helsing character, who is the respectable figure in the community, he can't escape his past really, and what he's done in the past, he can't get away from it at all. And this this person comes back from the past, as it, i.e., Robert Ryan, and acts as his kind of nemesis really, and it all. Uh, it's, it's it's a very powerful film, I think. Uh, Is that would you classify that as a film noir? Yes, I would definitely. Yes, yes, and it's a strange film, really, that you wouldn't associate with someone like MGM, really. 
you think of them as all this kind of Judy Garland thing and uh, everything's going up roses sort of thing, but uh, <laughs> not on this occasion. <laughs> but um, so, yes, uh, it, also you do think of Westerns with him sometimes. The Three Ten to Humour is another one. Might, uh, no, that's a good one. Glenn Ford, I think they worked well together. All those, all those days at sea kind of gave him a kind of, you know, kind of a chiseled, Yes, weathered, yes. I won't say weathered because yes. weathered means old, but he had Rugged. A, a physicality about. Yes, him. yes, he did. Um, yes, and and see certainly... this, that was one of the things that MGM didn't like. They, they they liked to sort of smooth it out, kind of thing. They didn't want anybody to look, so they tried to make him look more, uh, less rugged, really. <laughs> you know, more sort of um, not prettified, but you know handsome leading man type they didn't think he was that really you know and this is the thing you're often pigeonholed you're either this that or the other you know if you're not a handsome leading man you're just going to be a character man in the background or something but well when i i was researching my book uh the twilight zone encyclopedia mm -hmm. i had to get deeply into the life of rod serling yes and uh, one of rod serling's as you know one of rod serling's early live television dramas was called Patterns. Yes. And yes. that was a big that was a big hit for Van Heflin, I would think. Yes, it was, yes, definitely. I think so. Yes. Ed Begley, of course. Right. Ed Begley. Right. Of course. And then I, I always yeah. remember Van Heflin, um, well, certainly Battle Cry for Warner Brothers in fifty five, where he mm. plays uh, Major Sam Huxley yes, yeah. High Pockets is a is quite a movie. Yeah. High pockets, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And um and then the movie that yeah, was one of so. his last, if not one his last, was Airport in 1970, <laughs> where he plays Guerrero mm. the bomber. Yeah. yeah. What a role. <laughs> yes. Now, yeah, did, you, awesome. did you uh did you find any of his family? Uh, I contacted them, but unfortunately, I didn't get any response at this either. I <laughs> there was quite a lot of nephews and nieces as well, but unfortunately, I think that, uh, you have not been treated well by the families, <laughs> and I think they should be honored <laughs> that you've done it. Well, it's difficult. I mean, yeah. no, no. Um, do, by the way, do you... yes, it would help with photographs and that kind of thing. Yeah. Do were you able to get photographs for all of your books, uh, Derek? Uh, you were able to use them fine. I had a lot of stills, a lot of stills I could find from films and that kind of thing. But personal photographs, Hard. as I say, that's the difficult part. And this is what would bring it to life, I think. I mean, it did in the case of Ruth, because, of course, because of Bud, he had a lot of photographs. And straight away, it brings, you to, brings it to life for everybody, I think, when they can see them, well, in, every, you know, off stage kind of thing. Every, um, Sunday, every Sunday morning, yeah. I take a walk in Brentwood, and I walk past Van Heflin's mm. original house on the corner of Sunset Boulevard yeah. and uh, and uh, Kenter Avenue. And uh, my friend pointed out he had heard yeah. one time that that was Van Heflin's house. So, yeah, Heflin was quite yeah. quite an actor. Now, the last actor I want to talk about yeah. is Claire Trevor. Now, Claire Trevor's another mm. iconic woman of the 30s and 40s and 50s, um, the same year that uh, Brian Donlevy was putting on the Foreign Legion garb in, in uh, Bo Jest, Claire was cast opposite John yes. Wayne in Stagecoach for John Ford. Tell us why you decided That's to do right. a book on Claire yes. Trevor. I just thought she was a great actress and she just needed to be done because, I mean, I know someone had done a book previously, but it was a few years before. Um, I just thought, well, okay, somebody might have done, but then I think the, the world can take more than one book on Claire Trevor because, uh, you know, there's so many books on some people. Uh, if you wanted a book on Marilyn, you'd sort of be a bit, <laughs> you'd be falling over them really. <clears throat> Or Joan, Joan Crawford or someone like that. They've all been done quite a lot, really. Uh, whereas someone like Claire hasn't. And I think that's uh, a remiss, really. That's what now, I now um, 
I assume that she started on the stage as well. Yes, she did. Yeah, she had quite a good stage career. Um, she could have stayed on the stage, but I don't think she cared for um, doing the same thing every day for months, which is potentially what you would do in, on stage. You know, you, especially if you're going to be touring around the country, which she also did. Uh, and some of those tours were really successful, but it wasn't what she wanted to do for life, I don't think. Um, and there was something about her when she got to the movies. She just really sort of blossomed. Um, of course, in the early days, she didn't really find it easy in the 30s at Fox. But uh, how would you, how would she you, found a how, niche. You know. How would you describe her to young people today? How would I describe her? I would say she had. Um, I would say she had great warmth as an actress, as a person, and she had great uh, range as well. I would suggest, um, and she was just a natural actress. I think, uh, great humour as well, and all these things came together uh, in a in all her. Uh, she had a lot of perceptiveness in in her work. Um, I mean, it's quite striking that she was nominated quite a few times for Oscars. Uh, she won, I think, three, if I remember right. And uh, in over quite a period of time, from the 30s to the mm, 50s, definitely, yeah. Um, and even in the poor films, she did well. I mean, she she never gave a bad performance again, yeah. Let's see. She was not. She she actually won the Oscar in '49 for Key Largo, and uh, she was Key nominated Largo, yeah. nominated for the movie I so associate with her, which is the High and the Mighty, the uh, the William Wellman. Yes, yeah. Where she plays the the character who. <clears throat> That's right. Yes. Rather brass. I think uh, the way of describing uh, Claire Trevor in later years is probably brassy. Was probably a good way of describing her. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah. She hated that film, incidentally, because she it was all more or less doing the once. well. Because she was, it was all more or less in one set, and because they were within earshot, or because they were, you might have seen the back of somebody's head, they all had to stay there while everybody else did their parts, and so it was a little bit uh, tedious for a while. Really, you know? I think that was the key thing with that. Well, she's got some great lines in the in the movie. Yeah, uh, I think that yes. she's putting on her um, life vest, and she, the they, she pulls the oxygen bottles and makes the you know makes the vest inflate, and she says, uh, "Well, this mm. is a heck of a brazier." I thought that was pretty funny, and uh, she starts talking yeah, about yeah. Uh, her life, and uh, it's it, mm. I just love that movie to death, and I it's just it's just one of my favorites. Yes, yeah. So Derek, uh, you've yeah. written all these wonderful books. What's on What's on the uh, drawing board at the moment? I don't know. At the moment, I've been writing. It might sound a bit strange, but I've been writing about a tennis player from the Edwardian era, which is a bit of a departure from all the actors and things. <laughs> but uh, I've done a book about music hall as well. Uh, oh, so, you're working uh, on a book about I'm music. Show what's next. No, I've you know music hall, you know vaudeville. Oh, music halls. Okay, yeah. got it, got it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so, uh, yeah. it's been just fun. First of all, I congratulate you on taking these iconic character actors and giving them a book treatment because, well, like for me, part of the motivation for writing the Twilight Zone encyclopedia was to give the actors who were in that series, which I consider the best cast television series of all time, an opportunity yeah. to appear in my pages. And yeah, I'd agree. About them. I mean, you're devoting a whole book to people like Sidney Greenstreet and Ruth Roman. That's a wonderful contribution to yes, history. Yeah. And I think people should know about it. Thank if you. people want to go purchase your books, should they go through Amazon? Is that the best way? Uh, yeah, Amazon is okay. You can go straight to the MacFarlane website. Uh, I'm sorry, repeat that. Right? Which website? MacFarlane.com. Oh, MacFarlane. Uh, MacFarlane. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, and also Bear Manor something... Media, that's the other one. You have, I have something in common. Yes. <laughs> Both have books published by MacFarlane. 
my I did combat films. Yes, that's right. That's right. Back in the day. Did there, you? Oh, that's cool. Yes, I worked for those wow. those robber barons there. They, yes, they pay you a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's right. Yes, yeah. Uh, no, no. They're, they're, <laughs> yeah. I, I shouldn't say that on national radio or national uh, podcasting, but oh. the McFarland people, uh, uh, you know, yeah. they do, they do, they do provide a terrific venue for people who mm. want to write books on esoteric subjects and subjects that maybe the mainstream yes, yes. wouldn't normally do. So we have to give them credit. This is the problem. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, no, so. absolutely. Did you well, did you publish your uh, um, Twilight Zone book with Bear Manor, or was that? I did else? not. I actually went to Chicago Review Press, uh, and they did a nice. Oh, job. Right, they also okay. did the James Bond movie encyclopedia, the fourth oh, yes, edition, yes. which is now and yeah. out there now. Uh, they do a, a pretty good job. That's good. They do a pretty yeah. good job. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, we have been having a delightful yeah. conversation with Derek Skullthorpe. Skull, Skullthorpe, thank you. What part of England do you live in, Derek? Uh, in the north, in, in Leeds. In Leeds. You can tell by the accent, actually. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, is, that Leeds. Anywhere, is Leeds anywhere near Liverpool? It's not that far, really. Right, because you have kind of a Beatles it's quality. In the north, we're all northerners. Uh, there, there's kind oh, of... Oh, that's a... all right. That's not so bad, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's delightful, everybody. You've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies. And as I've mentioned before, our producers, Ben Shrewsbury, and we've had the delightful Derek Skullthorpe on talking about classic character actors. And thank you for listening. Derek, thank you so much. Thank you.